Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, we're talking to Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest piece details the average ACT score for high schools across the state. Jennifer, what will readers be able to find in your latest data story? We have published a set of average ACT scores for every high school in the state of Oklahoma. And why is that information important? It's especially important this year because ACT scores are not reported on the Oklahoma school report cards. They were not required in 2020 due to the pandemic. So these scores are separate. They come from ACT and are put out by the uh, state regents for higher education. And these are for 2020 graduates, and they are the highest score that they each graduate had achieved uh, in their high school career. And so what were some of the top scoring schools and what, what can we learn from those? There are quite a few schools that um, achieved an average over like the, the U.S. average. Uh, the top scoring school for 2020 was Classen SAS in Oklahoma City, uh, achieved an average of over 24 and a half points. A um, couple of others in the top five, Norman North, Mulhall Orlando, Harding Fine Arts, and Harding Charter Prep. And there's always some limitations when we're looking at data sets. What, what are the limitations here? Especially with scores like the ACT, standardized test scores, there's always um, somewhat of a correlation with um, income, uh, family income among the students. So, I mean, that's often the case with ACT scores that has been, um, you know, reported by academics and stuff and looked at. But it's still one of the best measures that we have of how well schools are preparing kids for life after high school. Well, uh, now, are these just public schools or does the report, uh, does the data include private school ACT scores as well? This report is just public schools, includes virtual schools and charter schools. It previously included private schools, but the state regents stopped reporting that last year. And why? What happened? I asked them that last year, and they said it was to align their data with other data sets that they reported. But it's pretty disappointing because that was one of the few measures that parents and the public had to um, compare public and private schools. And of course, there's been a lot of um, efforts to expand, you know, public funds for private schools. And when you can't um, see any measure of how those schools stack up, it's difficult as a parent to make those decisions. Well, are these the the very latest ACT scores? They're not. There's a little bit of a lag on the high school level scores, which I think are important. Um, you know, instead of just looking at a state average, you're able to drill down to each school. Parents are able to search this table 
we actually have already published um, the statewide scores for 2021. And um, those, the state average that year was 19.7. That was quite a bit lower participation because it was not required that year. All right. And uh, how has students' experience with the ACT changed throughout the pandemic? That was a a big issue a year or two ago. Right. It has been an issue. Um, The ACT typically is required um, for, you know, federal test score requirements for the state. Um, In 11th grade, all students have to take either the ACT or the SAT, but that was waived in 2020. And um, so so, uh, some of the data that we have is is not as good. Even students that wanted to take the ACT um, sometimes struggled during the pandemic to find a test site, and there were many test sites that were closed um, or not available. Does that um, so when students have the option to to not take uh, the ACT or the SAT, um, if it wasn't federally required, there would have still been an incentive for students planning to attend college uh, to take one of those standardized tests because it would have been required for some schools admissions process, wouldn't it? Yeah, but a lot of universities waived that requirement as well and went test optional. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, You can uh, see the data set and Jennifer's reporting at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. His latest story breaks down a troubling external examination of the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. Keaton, who conducted this examination and how long did they take? So the report was prepared by the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, uh, and it took several months of gathering documents, uh, conducting interviews of of employees within the Department of Corrections, and uh, it was finally released late last week. Well, according to that report, what's the greatest challenge facing our state prison system? The the report stated the greatest challenge as staffing. It mentioned that several prisons are regularly operating at below 50% of the recommended staffing level, some as low as below 40% of the recommended level, and that has several potential consequences, including you know an increased risk of uh, inmate violence. They found that there was a correlation between the most sparsely staffed facilities and in the rates of violence. So that that was certainly troubling to uh, the loft examiners. Well, prison staffing is an issue you've covered extensively over the last several months. What have corrections officials been doing to try to remedy that issue? So they recently, in April, implemented a pay increase of 30% for corrections officers and a lower amounts for all other DOC employees. Uh, so it's it's too early to tell if that's having a significant impact as far as you know how many people are coming on the the department says it's it's already helping but the the loft examiners were were critical they noted that there were the pay increases and increased recruitment efforts at career fairs and those sorts of things but they were critical of DOC not having a more strategic approach to staffing and recognizing that these are just generally hard jobs to fill. 
Now, one of the Office of Fiscal Transparency's uh, primary objectives is to try to save taxpayer money. Did they uncover any efficiencies within the state prison system? Yeah, they they recognize several areas where the agency could do a better job of sharing money-saving tips and reducing waste, essentially. They noted that at two minimum or two medium security prisons, excuse me, there were one was spending nearly twice as much as the other per year to feed prisoners. And every prison has a master menu. They all serve the same thing every day. So they noted, you know, that that was a big discrepancy, kind of asking what's going on there. And they recommended that the agency needs to start doing a better job of sharing you know, money-saving techniques and best practices across each prison facility. Now, the report is pretty critical of DOC's budgeting process. What changes did the examiners recommend there? Yeah, so they were they were critical of specifically reporting, you know, if they're spending money to repair, do maintenance at a facility, reporting it as overall agency expenses instead of we're spending this money on this prison. They were quite critical of that. And also just the, the amount of, as the prison population has gone down, they, they expected that the agency would need less money, even with inflation and those sorts of concerns, but the budget has continued to increase. So there were those sorts of accounting fixes they'd like to see. And also they think the agency could operate with, with less state funding. Well, lawmakers met to discuss that report on a Thursday afternoon last week. What did they have to say? There was some recognition, uh, particularly from Representative John Eccles, uh, that you know these are hard jobs to fill, especially when you consider that they require a more stringent background check. Um, they they require okay, so they have the the background check and. You have to meet more criteria than you would to work at a restaurant, for instance. And also you're working in a prison where you can't have your cell phone and it's a tough environment. Um, But there was also some, I think, questions just about their funding and with the prison population going down and us enacting, the state enacting criminal justice reforms. Like there were um, some questions just about why they've, they've continued to receive more funding. Is there a chance we'll see some new legislation prompted by this report? Yeah, there are several uh, legislative proposals within the report, and I'd expect the next step, of course, the new session won't start until next February, but the next step would likely be perhaps some interim studies on this topic later in the summer and into the early fall, and then we'll see potentially some some of these proposals uh, voted on early next year. All right, and where can listeners find a copy of that report if they'd like to read the whole thing? It is hyperlinked at the top of my story on OklahomaWatch.org and also on the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency's website. All right, well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, We've been talking to Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. You can read his story about the Office of Fiscal Transparency's report on the Department of Corrections and all his other investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment, we're talking to Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest Education Watch newsletter 
She discusses federal COVID relief funds for education. Uh, Jennifer, last fall, you wrote about the federal requirement that schools receiving those COVID relief dollars first survey their community for input on how to spend it. What did you find? We found that a lot of schools were really struggling with that. Um, There was kind of a variety. Some were really not putting forth a lot of effort. Some were trying to get parent feedback and just finding it difficult in the summer. Um, There were, you know, still a lot of concerns about gathering, like at a town hall. Um, Parents were kind of disengaged from the school community and maybe not filling out, you know, surveys or, or questionnaires that were being put out. So it was it was a struggle. A lot of schools were not able to get very much feedback. And so what's the latest? There's a new report out by the Center on Reinventing Public Education. They have been looking at the top 100 largest school districts in the country and kind of tracking them on several metrics related to COVID. And their public feedback is one of them. Their latest report found that Still, more than one in three schools across the country or school districts across the country are not collecting public feedback. So what all does that report look at? That just looks at the 100 largest school districts. Included in that are two in Oklahoma. That would be Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And are uh, Oklahoma school districts uh, collecting any public feedback? I have found some. Uh, Tulsa Public Schools is one that does have an active survey on their website. They are asking parents to weigh in on how they spend what COVID funds they still have available. And they've been spending that money, right? Absolutely. What kind of things are they buying? There's a wide variety, and it's a little bit difficult to track, um, especially covering the whole state. Um These schools are required to publish their plan, but they're not required to publish like what they've spent the money on. But in general, schools are spending these funds on things like broadband and technology. They're spending them on improvements to their school buildings, um, especially like air quality and water quality. Um, They're also spending a lot of funds on um, out of school time, like before school programs and summer school. What can they buy? Are there some guardrails on that? It's pretty flexible, actually. These funds are available for many, many things. And they have um, even extended the deadline, recognizing that schools are having a little bit of trouble, um, you know, especially if they wanted to spend it on um, hiring extra staff, for instance. There's a staff shortage, so they're they're struggling with that. do you have an example of a school district that that did not collect any feedback, and, and why does that really matter? I'm going to pick on my own kids' school a little bit here. Um, we have yet to receive any surveys as a parent in this school district uh, in Norman Public Schools, and um, they we did report on that in our story um, in the fall that they had their feedback was limited to like focus groups and didn't include like a broader swath of the community. One of the things they're doing this summer is summer school, um, but it starts at one o'clock in the afternoon. And if I had been surveyed or asked, I 
would have said that's not a great time for working parents. So that's kind of an instance where public feedback maybe could have informed their, um, you know, their programs a little better. All right. Now, you've been uh, keeping an eye on this uh, since the beginning. What's coming up next in your reporting on this? I definitely plan to do a lot more reporting in this area. I am following. There are several sites that um, track how much funds these schools have spent. There are still, you know, 100 plus Oklahoma school districts that haven't spent any of their ESSER 3 funds, which is the third round that came from the American Rescue Plan. That's the biggest batch of, of funds here. And I really want to follow up with those schools and find out what's going on. What what are the struggles that they're encountering? Why haven't they spent those funds? And what do they plan to do with them? All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can uh, read Jennifer's coverage of uh, this topic and all her other work on education at OklahomaWatch.org, or you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.